So today we're here with Professor Peter DiSciolli, who is a professor of political science in Stony Brook University with extensive background in political psychology and experimental economics. He received his PhD in psychology from University of Pennsylvania and went on to complete his postdoctorate studies in Chapman, Brandeis, and Harvard University. His research intersects concepts in biology to notions of morality, condemnation, and moralistic punishment. I mean, it seems like one of the big differences is the strength of someone's imagination. Uh, So if you have a weak imagination, and then if you hear that someone scraped their knee and they live thousands of miles away, then that doesn't bother you. But if they scrape their knee right in front of you, then you might help them up. Uh, So someone with a more vivid imagination, they might uh, want to help the person that's further away. My name is Jenny Dodari, and this is The Utopian. start off by deconstructing the concept of the self with you so so whenever we talk about this idea of the self the idea of autonomy is very crucial we assume that we are free so based on your background in evolutionary psychology what would you say are we truly free so that's i guess a difficult question i think we'd have to try to clarify what we mean by free uh, which is something that philosophers have had trouble doing for the last few thousand years. So, so that's kind of the problem is just like, what, what do we, what do we mean by free in that situation? Uh, So just to clarify that point, let's think of freedom as some sort of moral autonomy that when we are considering questions of morality, the moral decisions that we reach Mm -hmm. are a result of our own making that they are not influenced by any sort of deterministic factor. Mm -hmm. So are we free in that sense that we can contrive our own moralities? Uh, Yeah, so it's a complicated question uh, because uh, all of our choices have causes, and they have causes that originate outside of anything that we would call uh, us. Uh, So, for example, unconscious mental processes uh, are the source of every aspect of our experience. In that sense, you know, and just kind of a typical scientific world, you would say there is no free will and no, we're not free because we haven't found anything corresponding uh, with this, you know, in the brain or, or uh, anything like that. But that's not what we mean in everyday life by free. Uh, in everyday life, when I say I chose something freely, I mean, I wasn't subject to coercion or it wasn't just a compulsion that was outside of my control. It wasn't an overwhelming emotion uh, that made me do it. And so there's various things that can, that can make me behave in a way Uh, that I don't feel like are free. And then there's other choices that I make that I do feel like I freely uh, chose. And this is a very real distinction. It's not a fake one or a made up one. And it's extremely important for moral decisions, uh, uh, as as you mentioned. In that case, what we mean by the word free uh, is pretty complicated and and just distinguishes uh, certain kinds of mental states uh, that we have uh, from others. Basically, if we convert the word free to many other words, it would become clear. Uh, so if we asked whether my behavior was planned, uh, that has a much easier answer because planning is a, a clearer word than free. Uh, so uh, humans certainly plan their behaviors. Uh, there's no question about that. Uh, psychologists study planning. 
Many other animals plan their behaviors. Uh, there's no question about that. Uh, so if we want to talk about planning, that's a pretty easy psychological uh, question to have. Uh, whether that's the same as free is kind of up to the, just people have used that word in so many ways that it's hard to know what it means. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that human beings are influenced by external factors when they are inventing what they would eventually consider is a free thought. Our free thoughts are composed of, of pieces uh, that, that we, we would not consider uh, free, uh, the same way that an airplane is made of parts uh, that can't fly you across the country. Right. That makes a lot of sense. But at the end of the day, the way that the human mind mm -hmm. essentially plans, it is rooted in the self. So the self is, is itself made of psychological pieces. Uh, so, so there is not you know, an uncaused self. Uh, the, the self is an experience that we have and uh, that's produced by you know, previous causes too. But actually, it's more that morality depends on the self. The self does not depend on morality. Morality is something that a social animal does. It's fundamentally social. There's no such thing as morality without social life. So a person on an island by themselves just has no capability of being moral or immoral. That's just not possible uh, because it means things that happen between multiple uh, people. Uh, just like you can't lie uh, on an island by yourself. Uh, there's no one to be deceived uh, by it. Morality is closely tied with us being a social species. The self, I don't know, may or may not be, but if we were a solitary species, we could have a self, but we could not have morality. So the self is a more basic uh, concept, much more basic uh, than, than morality. Morality has you know many, many pieces, uh, but it certainly involves uh, blaming others and praising others. It involves rules of actions uh, that, that we're uh, not supposed to take, and, and it involves us punishing people who take those actions like lying, stealing, and killing. And none of those things would be possible if we were uh, by ourselves uh, on an island. I mean, even if, if you put a human on an island, they could mentally simulate other people because we're social. Uh, but if we imagine that we were a truly uh, solitary species that doesn't have a social life, uh, then we would never develop concepts of blame. There's no one there to blame. Or concepts of praise. There's no one there to praise. Uh, so, uh, so those concepts could not uh, exist if, if we were not a social animal. Right. So I want to ask you more specifically about concepts of right and wrong, because mm -hmm. I can imagine a scenario in which a human being is in an isolated mm -hmm. area. For example, hypothetically, what if yes. they saw an animal being killed okay. by another? Okay. And the visualization of pain could potentially get them to mm -hmm. assess whether what is happening before them is just or unjust. Mm -hmm. Animals do socialize across species. Also, if it's a human on an island, they see other animals. The animals might start to fit their template for uh, that's normally used for humans. And so normally, we are upset when a human does something bad to another human. Uh, but this is just a template in our minds. Other things could trigger it. A robot could hurt another robot. That might fit into our mind's template. And we might uh, judge it the same way we would judge people. But this template still originally evolved to deal with people. And it's just that other things can, uh, can fit the template. So you're mm -hmm. saying that morality is an evolving thing that 
the scope of our morality can expand to incorporate beings that are not just humans. But yeah, certainly our moral ideas uh, change over time. Uh, who counts as a moral victim uh, changes over time. Especially if you look at human history, very often we only apply our moral rules to our own society. And people outside of our society aren't subject to those rules. We're not as offended if they do morally wrong things. Uh, and then also we're not offended if someone in our group does a terrible thing to them, uh, like uh, killing them. But then uh, as uh, societies have grown and uh, people have become more dependent on each other, uh, we see this expanding so that, and uh, you know, hopefully in the modern age, everyone can agree that uh, certainly all humans uh, are you know, deserve the status as, as being you know, morally protected. And sometimes we talk about extending this to non-human animals. So uh, recently some courts were trying to decide whether chimpanzees uh, should be counted as, as a person uh, by the law. And so that's the kind of changing that you're talking about is, does a chimpanzee count? I don't remember where that currently stands. Right. So I guess I'm interested in understanding the why of all of this. Why is it that our moralities stemmed and originated at a certain stage and now we're kind of evolving, uh, growing to encompass more beings into our moral compass. Is there some sort of objective standard that you would argue we're gravitating towards or um, are we kind of just endlessly in this process of subjective growth? So the psychology of morality is the same. Uh, so the uh, meaning that humans have not evolved uh, you know, new moral ideas. So we have the same ones that we had a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, uh, but uh, what changes is how we use those concepts and what we use them for. Generally, as uh, technology and uh, improves and uh, markets and societies grow, uh, we're more dependent on each other, and uh, so it makes it starts to make sense for people to use their moral judgments. Uh, more broadly uh, for a, a larger uh, set of people. Uh, I should say this can be good and bad. The way you were saying it kind of sounds rosy, like we're, we'll take care of everybody now, and that's certainly, there's certainly that happening, and, that's, and that is rosy. Uh, but, but it can also be bad uh, because many moral rules are terrible things. Uh, so like wanting to kill someone who has uh, different religious beliefs than you, that's a horrible thing. Uh, and as societies grow and uh, interact with each other, we also see that one, uh, you know, happening. Um, and then, uh, and so there the application of the moral rule leads to a bad thing. It leads to uh, fighting, you know, terrorism, uh, things like that. So it's not all good stuff. Uh, the good stuff is there too. Right. So the example that you gave of a person potentially killing another person for having a different religious belief has its origins in differing ideology. I wanted to ask you, is there any sort of evolutionary inclination that we have either more toward altruism or toward selfishness or um, having this very rigid ideology? Yeah, so this is kind of an age-old philosophical question is whether we're inherently good or, or inherently Rousseau uh, selfish. And Hobbes. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, basically, these are not in opposition. Uh, so very often your self-interest is to be nice to others. And so that's called mutualism in evolutionary biology. And often, actually, evolutionary biologists do think about altruism as in conflict with self-interest. But I think that's just because that's the more sort of puzzling, uh, difficult case to deal with. But the more common case is mutualism. Uh, usually, 
you know, being mean to someone else is usually pretty bad for you. Uh, they usually don't like it and they usually do something bad back. So altruism is a good strategy and self-interest is required to keep you alive. Uh, if, you, if you weren't interested in yourself and you fell off a boat, you would just drown, right? So how does that explain the existence of true selfless deeds? Mm -hmm. If even altruism is motivated by self-interest. Yeah, so I wouldn't say that altruism exactly is motivated by self-interest. One reason it's important to avoid saying that is just because in everyday life, we know people who are uh, who might do something nice while privately holding a manipulative belief. Uh, and so this happens to us all the time. When someone's nice to us, we have to discern their motives and try to figure out are they nice because they like me or are they nice because they have an agenda? So this is something we have to figure out all the time. It's a very familiar thing to us. So we wouldn't want to give people the impression that, that, that this idea is that people harbor secret agendas against <laughs> everyone. Uh, that would be a very paranoid uh, you know, worldview. And I, right. I think a lot of people are drawn into that kind of par paranoid worldview. Uh, either they embrace it be, uh, with these, based on these ideas, uh, or they reject the ideas because they think that's where it leads and they don't want to be paranoid. So we kind of have to try to be precise about these things. Um, evolutionary interests shape altruistic motives. The motives are genuinely altruistic. There's no hint of a self-interest in them. But there's an evolutionary interest that drove that, which just means that individuals that had that altruistic motive uh, did better. They were more healthy. They survived longer. Uh, they did better in reproduction. And so uh, that's an evolutionary interest, but that's not a person's interest. This refers to a history of what happened over time, not what the person is thinking or doing. And so in everyday life, when we distinguish altruism from selfishness, we mean what's the person's private motive in their head. This evolutionary perspective of altruism is perfectly compatible with the mind having a purely altruistic motive with no hint of any representation of trying to manipulate uh, the other person. What I'm getting is that when we're deconstructing the self, there are aspects of our evolutionary makeup that make us more inclined toward altruism, but there are also part of us that are motivated by self-interest. Yes. And that in itself is an entirely gamble, how a person is composed. What is, what is it the byproduct of? Well, all people have both of those uh, things. Right. As a society, we have a tendency to say that some people were specifically good while others committed mass atrocities. Mm -hmm. What is motivating these moral decisions in the context of a political world. Mm -hmm. So basically, these are different strategies. And um, uh, that and so evolution favors variation in these strategies. So sometimes altruism pays and uh, bringing people together pays. Uh, and sometimes attacking pays. And right, but it's a lot more, people. it's mm -hmm. a lot more complex than that. Because mm -hmm. when people are planning certain actions, mm -hmm. especially political leaders, mm -hmm. I doubt that at all times, they are considering this concept of a strategy sometimes they are purely ideologically driven many times. So um, I guess I want to talk about all of this, taking mm -hmm. into account the presence of our irrational behaviors, that we're not always strategic thinkers, thinking that in this instance, altruism will benefit me, but we're just acting. 
Yes, but when we act psychological systems in our minds uh, that were shaped by evolution uh, that determine these actions. And so to us, it's a spontaneous action, but that doesn't mean there aren't strategies or costs or, and benefits underlying it. Uh, when we look at others and we want to help them or, or want to hurt them, uh, there's many things going on under the hood uh, in our psychological processes calculating costs and benefits and strategies that we're not aware of. Most of the time, they're pretty sharp. Sometimes they get it wrong, just like disgust can be wrong. If I give you a piece of chocolate uh, shaped like uh, dog poop, uh, your disgust system will go off, and it's totally wrong. Uh, but it's trying to do a precise calculation. Right. You just manage to trick it. So is the reason human beings react differently is because the cost-benefit analysis that is occurring in their minds, it's generating different results. Yes, it could be generating different results. Also, they're, different people may, may be calibrated a little bit differently um, because one strategy could be better. So, uh, evolution could favor multiples, a mix of strategies. So why is that? Because when there's trade-offs, um, very often you get in a situation where, where evolution favors a mixture of strategies instead of a single one. So what exactly does that mean? Uh, it means different propensities to... Uh, make one choice or, or another. There's uh, nothing in evolutionary competition that says a single strategy will be favored. Uh, even if you just think of sports competitions, most sports, there are many possible strategies. Uh, your football team can focus on the running game or the passing game. Neither is better. So uh, evolution can favor multiple strategies when, they're, uh, when they perform uh, equally well. So uh, I mentioned earlier that there will be some societies or some groups of people who will argue for a free market economy in which the government does not intervene at all, whereas mm -hmm. others will argue for the existence of a welfare state to take care of society's most vulnerable. How do individuals reach these contrasting conclusions even when they are growing up in the same societies? So I guess we could say that part of it is rooted in our psychology of ownership. We also have ideas about um, helping people who are needy. And uh, this is also part of our evolved uh, concepts. Uh, one main reason is just because all of us are needy at one point uh, or another. Uh, we're going to get sick or injured. And especially over uh, evolutionary history, if you are sick uh, in your village and you need to go out and get uh, food, then you're going to need someone to help you out in that uh, situation. And uh, so uh, humans are sensitive to things like whether someone is starving or sick. And we generally want to help someone uh, in that situation, depending on how much it costs us. So uh, it comes back to the self. So we mm -hmm. ultimately make this assessment based on whether we have needed help at one point or whether we will need help at one point. Because mm -hmm. I, I, I do know people who would argue for the existence of a welfare state, for example, without mm -hmm. the expectation of reciprocity. Mm -hmm. So I want to I break that down a little more mm -hmm. because it's a very complicated thing. Mm -hmm. So actually, it's thought that this psychology of, uh, I guess you could call it uh, social insurance. There's, there's, a couple, there's a bunch of ugly words for it uh, that scholars made up. <laughs> uh, but so, sometimes it's called risk pooling. And so the idea is if we if we help each other out in, in bad times, then we'll all be uh, better off. Uh, but it's actually, according to those ideas, it's distinct from reciprocity because in reciprocity, you have a clear idea of what you expect in return. 
Uh, but for risk pooling or social insurance, uh, you only uh, get help if you encounter the same need. Uh, so you don't, you're not necessarily expecting to be paid back. Uh, if you, that might never happen to you. Uh, you might never you know, fall over the cliff and break your leg. Uh, but if you did, then you would hope that the person you helped would return the favor. Uh, so that's when we would see this, the reciprocity motive emerge. It doesn't emerge when you help someone in need. It emerges if you're in need and then they don't help you. That's when this uh, rec reciprocal aspect would kick in and you'd say, you know what, maybe I won't help you next time. And so there you would see the reciprocity aspect of it. You wouldn't see it up front uh, because you can't be consciously aiming to get reciprocity. Uh, because if you did that, the insurance wouldn't work because if someone fell and broke their leg and then you thought to yourself, well, when am I going to fall and break my leg? Um, you don't know if that's going to happen. So these are for unpredictable calamities. If we only did them when we expected reciprocity, it wouldn't happen. And that's why this psychology evolved to supplement our reciprocity psychology. Right. So I'm trying to connect this idea to what we were talking about earlier, about how mm -hmm. many different ev evolutionary strategies could come off as successful. So mm -hmm. I suppose one of the reasons there is so much disagreement, especially in economic thought, is because right now we're kind of at that trial and error phase where we're trying to see if these different strategies that we have will better aid our survival than the other. I don't know that people are trying to think of like the species survival and evolution doesn't say that individuals would consider that. So I don't know if that's really a, a, a part of the uh, decision. But I guess maybe a simpler thing would be to say would just be our happiness uh, because we would all be happiest if uh, no one was poor and everyone had all of the uh, food and shelter and medicine that they needed. Is that true? Well, I would hope so. Okay. I guess, yeah, I mean, there could be some uh, psychopaths who prefer to see someone suffer. Right. But I, mean, I, but I would think that most people would be happiest if everyone uh, was had so, what they needed. I mean, if we take if we take that axiom, let's say, and mm -hmm. say that it's true, that everyone would be happy in a world in which there is no poverty, mm -hmm. um, why does legislation exist that Well, because individuals don't want to pay that cost themselves. Uh, so they would like it to happen, but they don't necessarily want to pay their taxes and chip into it or you know okay. give to charity. So yeah, and in, so that's why I said in an ideal world, we, we would all like that the most. The question is, how much is it worth to you? Right. Uh, how much of your effort, your time, your energy, your money is it worth to you? Uh, and if these are people that you never interact with, so they're in a far off, uh, uh, distant uh, country, then your mind is going to say it's worth less to you. Uh, and so that's why uh, we have you know such dramatic inequalities around the world, across especially across uh, countries. Right. So when we're kind of thinking about that idea that you just mentioned, that when someone is farther away, uh, we tend to care less about their well-being. Mm -hmm. There are people in this world with a mm -hmm. very expansive moral compass in which the individual that's currently struggling in Syria is not so different from someone who's struggling in um, Times Square, for example. Both human lives deserve the same level of dignity and the mm -hmm. same level of care. So... Is there any way that 
this sort of social apathy that exists when we're talking about people in faraway places, is there any way to expand the scope of our morality to encompass more individuals so that we can get closer to this ideal, ideal world where poverty doesn't exist? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, it seems like one of the big differences is the strength of someone's imagination. Uh, so if you have a weak imagination, and then if you hear that someone scraped their knee and they live thousands of miles away, then that doesn't bother you. But if they scrape their knee right in front of you, then you might help them up. Uh, so someone with a more vivid imagination, they might uh, want to help the person that's further away. And so this you know, says one, one way that you can help it is to help improve people's imaginations, uh, including by you know, obvious things like uh, videos and, and uh, uh, stories and um, uh, to, to try to uh, make it more clear uh, what's happening. But pretty much every person presented with suffering in front of them uh, would uh, want to help that person. Right. So you are an educator. Mm-hmm. You are in many ways given the responsibility of inspiring that imagination in your students. Mm-hmm. So I want you to talk about academia a little bit, your own experience with it, and even the experience of your colleagues that you've witnessed. And I want to ask you, do you think that higher education is meeting its goal of inspiring that imagination that ultimately leads to empathy? And if not, uh, what is it lacking? I would guess I would say you know, one limiting factor is that uh, scholars are themselves in a very heated competition uh, with each other. Uh, it's, it's like the Olympics. And so, uh, so when competing with each other, they're often you know, not showing the same altruism uh, to each other. And so many may forget the whole thing about inspiring other people and stuff like that. Uh, so, so there is a lot of sort of scholarly, I guess the nice way to say it would be debate uh, or deliberation. Uh, but sometimes people are kind of so focused on sort of fighting over ideas and debating what's right and what's not uh, that they may lose sight of goals uh, like this, that, that, uh, that they are very well poised to, to uh, help accomplish. Right. So how can we resurrect these goals? How can we put it in the forefront of and, uh, and education? Actually, let me just give you like a great example. Is, um, so Peter Singer is a philosopher. Uh, you may have heard of him. He's called, he has an idea of, I think there's a book or something called The Expanding Circle. It's exactly about what you just said. Is how uh, Over time, we've expanded the uh, people that we care about. Uh, and, and he wants to encourage that. He's a utilitarian uh, philosopher. And he's also argued very strongly that uh, we should care about every human equally. It doesn't matter where they are on the planet and that this is a huge uh, gap in our moral understanding, a huge blind spot. And, and, uh, and I like all his ideas. They're great. So anyway, so he's an example and, and he's really made an effort to reach out to students and the public and communicate these inspiring ideas. And, and it's worked and he's gotten many people to uh, donate a portion of their salary uh, that will go towards effective altruism that tries to maximize the impact on the uh, people who uh, need it most. Uh, so that's an example of a, a scholar that really put their mind to taking these ideas. He, he's a utilitarian philosopher. That's what his arguments are based on and um, making them accessible to the public. We could you know, compare him to other philosophers who are you know, just kind of arguing with each other in journals. And so there we see sort of the distinction of like, how much effort went into uh, communicating and inspiring, and then how much went into 
uh, create a new buzzword and then arguing that your buzzword's better than someone else's uh, buzzword. And academia can quickly devolve uh, into, into that. Right. So I guess that also goes to this concept of imagination that you were talking about mm -hmm. earlier, which I love, which is that this uh, singer specifically mm -hmm. had enough of an imagination to realize that action was more effective than simple argumentation. Mm -hmm. And maybe there is imagination lacking in educators as well, which is mm -hmm. kind of ironic because mm -hmm. they're the ones we're depending on to inspire imagination in us. Yeah, I mean, I think there's kind of a very strong irony in social science in particular, uh, because social scientists study things like social status, uh, competition, prestige. And so we study these things. So you'd think that we would understand them enough to know when we're falling for the trappings of them, right? But that's not at all what happens. Uh, so you might think like social scientists would be a little better prepared than say, you know, mathematicians or biologists. So if the mathematicians get into a prestige battle, well, I mean, they don't study social prestige. So, okay, so they fell into the same trap that many humans have fallen into uh, in the past. But as social scientists, we supposedly study this. So how could we just be doing the same thing and, and uh, not really talking about it? So in conclusion, there are a lot of unknowns. Everything mm -hmm. is incredibly complex. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of limitations to human knowledge and we ourselves fall into the traps that we outline. Mm -hmm. If you look at any given snapshot, then you'll see a lot of these you know, unseemly uh, human behaviors. Uh, but if you look at the pro our progress in understanding uh, human psychology, human decisions, uh, over the last hundred years, it's just uh, you know extremely uh, dramatic. Uh, so you have to zoom out to like uh, the ten year, twenty year, uh, thirty year uh, to see the the what the arc of progress. I mean, I I would say there's absolutely uh, hope. So I've just it looks like uh, progress in our scientific understanding, our uh, scientific understanding of human behavior, and then connecting it with uh, economics and uh, politics. Understanding uh, human evolution and the evolution of the mind um, can help us understand many of the difficult conflicts uh, that we have in society. And we're only just beginning that. So it's really at the absolute most infancy that you can find. Uh, the, there's only a handful of articles and books that have tried to integrate evolutionary psychology uh, with our understanding of government and society. So, so currently there's really... Uh, very little evidence that that we're integrating our understanding of human evolution uh, into our understanding of society. But there's that's there are hints of change, and so we'll, we can just hope that that is embraced and that um, eventually it could lead to a clearer understanding and uh, help us orient towards the more altruistic uh, strategies that would make everyone better off. Mm -hmm.